Just One More with Joanna and Daphne, the fitness and nutrition podcast for normal people who want to be more awesome. If you have trouble deciding between Just One More Cupcake and Just One More Kettlebell Swing, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joanna Shawflam. I'm an actor, a comedian, and a normal person. And Daphne is not here this week because we are talking with a special guest. Uh, Jenna Hollenstein, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, so before we begin, remember to talk to your doctor or medical practitioner before starting any workout or nutrition plan. Uh, Jenna is on the show because uh, I follow you on Instagram, oh. full disclosure, <laughs> uh, and I was so excited to see uh, that you have a new book out. Um, so uh, I thought that we would talk about your book, but I wanted to start by just getting an introduction to who you are and what you do. So thank you so much. Um and thank you to my lovely assistant, Lisa Phil, <laughs> got me on Instagram because otherwise I would totally not be there. She's also the person that does all that beautiful artwork with like the book surrounded by candy and vegetables and things like this. So she's improved my life immeasurably. Um, I'm a non-diet or anti-diet nutrition therapist. Um, I have a private practice also called Eat to Love in Manhattan. And I work with people there um, in person, but also virtually. I am a writer, I guess. Um, I think when you've written more than one book, you can definitely call yourself a writer. That seems fair. I think I've been trying to prove my seventh grade teacher wrong <laughs> because she told me, Hollenstein, let's just admit it. Writing is not your strong suit. <laughs> Many of us are living our lives essentially trying to prove our seventh grade teachers wrong in one way or another. I totally agree. And so that I carry that with me. And I think I'm, I'm, go, I'm almost at the point now at 44 where I can embrace the word writer. Um, I'm a mom. I have a three and a half year old son named, we call him Mimo. His name is Domenico. Um, I was a cat mom until recently and I adore uh, animals. I think that they let us be I don't know, in our bodies and affectionate and loving in ways that sometimes complicated humans don't. Um, and I'm, you know, a New Yorker, a sister, a daughter, um, like a lot of women, I am many things to many people. I'm a partner to my, my Sicilian scientist partner. <laughs> uh, yeah. Great. Um, so, how did you come to be doing what you do? I'm always interested for people who do coaching or counseling or things like that. I'm always interested in sort of what path brought you there. Um, yeah. Because I think most people don't, you know, go to undergrad and say, I'm going to major in being a, you know, anti-diet coach. <laughs> oh, no, you know, I think I chose my nutrition major when I was at Penn State almost to like make my mom happy because hmm. like, you know, she's a home ec teacher. I think had she continued past the master's degree, she would have gotten a PhD in nutrition. And so I think there was part of me that was like trying to fulfill her wishes in that way. Um, but at the same time, like a lot of us, it was sort of something I was dealing with internally. You know, I grew up in a dieting household. Um, when I came home from my freshman year in college, I was weighed for my, you know, annual physical, and then basically went on a diet with my mom. And through that learned lots of disordered eating tricks that I brought back with me. And so that year that I chose my major, I was like collecting my disordered eating behaviors. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I became a dietitian officially in 1999, so it's officially been like 20 years. Wow. But for the first 15 years, I was a medical writer and editor because part of me knew I shouldn't be offering anybody else advice about how to eat. And another part of me also felt very confused about what was actually true in the science because it always seemed to be changing. Mm -hmm. And so through that, I also was working with my um, abuse of alcohol and I chose to quit drinking at 33 and I talk about it as without hitting bottom, you know, because I did, I, I wanted to like take issue with the fact that hitting bottom was the only reason we ever get well. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm a totally like non-dramatic, boring, just, you know, disorder drinker. Isn't that enough reason to stop? Because I want to like see what else is going on, what else is out there. What might I be missing because I'm like self-medicating a year into sobriety, I started practicing meditation. I got together with my now partner and I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't see myself being able to maintain a relationship and keep my heart open if I don't have some sort of stability. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to find a way to stay with my experience, keep my heart open, but not fall apart. And then as I was on that path, I started to see like, elements of the diet culture and how we use food and how we use a disordered body image to almost fulfill the same purpose as I used alcohol and dieting and shopping and lots of different things. Mm -hmm. How we use things to change our experience, to not totally be with ourselves. And that was around the same time that the third edition of Intuitive Eating came out. Mm-hmm. A book that has been mentioned so many times on our podcast. It's so funny. <laughs> it's, it's like the Bible. Yeah. You know? And I happened to meet Evelyn Triboli in Houston at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting. And we even discovered that we were, like, practicing the same, in the same lineage of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And, it, and then it went from there. I was kind of bringing elements of Buddhist meditation and philosophy in and marrying them with the principles, and they were so complementary. They really fed one another Mm -hmm. in a very interesting way. And then just kind of on a hunch, I took this classical Buddhist teaching called the Six Paramitas and, like, really just dove in and explored, like, how do these provide support for changing the way we relate to food and body? And it was such an interesting learning process writing the book because that was you know when I really dug into these things and fully explored them and I would say that the process is still going on isn't it always (laughs) I mean you know you finish the book because you have to at some point right it's going to be inadequate you know but then you continue to like see like oh my god yeah this is really happening and this is really relevant you know aspects of the book I might have emphasized differently, you know, if I were writing it again today. Well, that that can be for the second edition, right? (laughs) Um, Well, the book is called Eat to Love. And um, as you said, it it sort of starts out um, in, I think, a really clear and concise way talking about what diet culture is, how it's affected the way that so many of us relate to food in our bodies, um, and 
and why uh, many of the things that we believe to be true about uh, food and exercise and dieting simply aren't the case. Um, and then you spend the majority of the book um, using these Buddhist practices and Buddhist ideas as sort of a framework for working through some of those ideas. And um, like you said, having a, a way to support yourself as you go through that. Because I think um, one of the things that's so um, disorienting about trying to leave diet culture is um, the nice thing about diets is they tell you what to do. I know. And uh, it's really hard for a lot of people, I think, to hear, don't like those things that they're telling you to do are bad. They're bad for you. And some part of us knows that. But then to be left sort of adrift and, and to not have a framework for what happens after. Um, and so I was really interested in reading your book in um, sort of using these ideas from meditation and from Buddhism as a way to like have a framework of thinking about these things, to have pre-existing uh, teachings and ideas that can support that journey. So I thought that was so interesting. Well, and the other thing that I'm just realizing now that really does provide maybe not as exacting and quantifiable, you know, um, a guide as diets do, but those teachings I think are so powerful, first of all, because they're old, mm -hmm. they've been around for a long time, they're time tested, they're not like something I made up in my basement. Also, they're rooted in the body, mm -hmm. you know, because so we don't have the guideline of, you know, X, we're supposed to eat X number of something anymore, but we do have a very clear physical experience of what it feels like to make certain decisions when we pay attention. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually do have these sensing bodies that are consistently always communicating multiple things to us at any one time. And it's a matter of sort of listening. It's like taking the banana out of our ear to like say, oh, sorry, I've not listened to you for the past 40 years. Now I'm listening. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so um, uh, hard to, uh, or I guess it's insidious about diet culture is that diets and um, the talk around them really encourages us not to listen to our bodies. It encourages yeah. us to separate our minds and bodies says like, you know, mind over matter, as long as you, you know, if you're really disciplined and you work hard enough and you just ignore your body enough, you can get whatever it is that you want. Um, and uh, to have a framework for saying, actually, we need to get back to the body. The body is the source of the information. And hey, here's a practice that's been around for a really long time that's entirely about like listening to your body, being in your body in a way that... Um, is neutral about the body itself, mm -hmm. um, I think is uh, really interesting and powerful. And that's respectful of the individual's perspective. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's really interesting to, to note how early and how consistently we are told not to trust these things. Mm -hmm. And to put that trust, to like willingly hand over that trust and autonomy to somebody else often for the purposes of selling something. Sure. But also because of like a deep sort of dis-ease with the body mm -hmm. and its diversity. Um, and so the idea that we can 
poke holes in that campaign, you know, that's been programming us for decades and come back to something that we're born with and something that actually allows us to do all the things and will be with us until it's no longer with us. I mean, it is the primary long-term relationship that we have is with mm-hmm. them, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the um, things that I really liked about your book is that it framed a lot of concepts that I'd read about or heard about before in a slightly different way. Um, and one of those was you, you um, I, I'm not totally sure this is your term, but I loved it, was um, magical eating. Can you talk a little bit about like what you mean by magical eating? Yeah, so... I will explain where that came from. Go. <laughs> I was teaching an online course with my meditation instructor, Susan Piver, and it was called the Dharma of Diet. And it was really when we were first starting to explore, like pulling this together into like some sort of a thing. And because we had been having a series of conversations just about our own process of working with food and our bodies and weight and dieting and stuff. And she blurted out this expression one day and I was like, <gasps> doing that and so with her full permission I have stolen that like an artist and really run with it because it is it gets at the heart of why we're able to deny the very real information and data we have from our bodies there is a natural preference that we have as human beings for safety and pleasure and a natural distaste for displeasure and discomfort but the idea that we could, if we could just find the right diet, or if we could just get our bodies chiseled in a certain way, we would be able to sort of sidestep the natural suffering inherent in being a human being. Seem to just ca- be captured by these words, magical eating. Mm-hmm. And also the idea of how this really has become almost like a religion. You know, and you're talking about that certainty quality. Like we do not like uncertainty. No, who does? It's terrible. <laughs> don't like it. And I often talk about with my clients how like we would almost have a preference for a negative certainty over the possibility of any uncertainty. Yeah, the devil you know meets the devil or maybe or beats the devil or maybe not devil that you don't know, but it's probably right. a devil because I don't know what it is, so I'll just stick to this thing that I know. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've recommended so many times Pema Chodron's book, Comfortable with Uncertainty, for that very reason, because it gives us these little, like, pithy kind of practices and words about, you know what, uncertainty is the truth. And anyone that tells you otherwise is lying, mm-hmm. likely to sell something, but also likely because of their own misunderstanding of our predicament, you know? Right. And so this is an opportunity to move toward that discomfort in an effort to actually reveal what is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just there's something so um, appropriate about using the word magic because that is how I think so many of us think about um, diets, especially diets we have not yet tried, <laughs> um, and uh, that we're all looking for that magical thing where we we have this feeling that there's just something we're not getting, and if we could just get that thing, if we could just figure that thing out, uh, then all of our, this would have to get easier. This would, you know, things would have to clear up. Um, and, uh, for so many of us, that magical thing that is offered is like this diet, this exercise plan. Um, 
Well, and that allows us to discount the very real lived experience of having done this already <laughs> yes. with many different, you know, brands or, you know, shiny colors or whatever. Um, and that it never has worked before. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's this, you know, like the magical thinking that allows an alcoholic to think like, well, the next kind of, you know, moderation management technique will be just around the corner. And that'll be the thing that'll let me keep doing this. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, totally. Well, I love it. I'm going to use magical eating as a phrase all of the time. Thank you. Um, and I think it really leads well into something else that you say in the book, which is that you describe um, sort of the the issue of being caught up in weight cycling and dieting and all that stuff um, as a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual solution. Um, and I thought you did a really nice job in the book um, of explaining that uh, when you say spiritual, it seemed to me like you meant it's a question of your spirit. It has to do, not necessarily that it has to be religious, but that the problems that bring us to the point of feeling like we really have to like get out of this cycle of dieting and attempting weight loss and all that stuff. Um, often those are problems with bodies, but for me, it was a problem of my, of my spirit. I felt torn in my soul and I was just like, I have to be done with this. I have to find something else because this, some core of me is not happy here. Um, well, I don't think we can separate the two. Mm-hmm. I'm struck by the fact that a lot of these pursuits that involve the body, like completely leave out the spiritual side of like mm-hmm. whatever. And, and by spiritual, I just mean like how we relate to ourselves and our surroundings, nothing mm-hmm. religious. It's, it's secular spirituality. And then in a similar way, spiritual pursuits leave out the body. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, these two things have been sort of separated, like really struck me, like how can we actually think that we're going to make any kind of real change or really understand our situation if we don't acknowledge that they are, they need one another, mm-hmm. you know, in order, I mean, it's interesting how, like, how we like to kind of intellectualize meditation and, and Buddhist philosophy when, you know, if we didn't have a body, we would not be able to sit. Right. You know, it's like our bodies are the things that allow us to move toward anything resembling enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, our bodies possess the, the sensing tools that allow us to interact with our environment and that give us that possibility of perceiving and responding. That's what it's all about. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like some, um, I haven't thought this idea through, so I hope it comes out in an intelligent way. It's almost like something in, um, inherent in us understands that the body is important, but isn't sure how because our, our sort of modern existence or, you know, religious traditions don't explain how it's important. And then in swoop in all these, um, you know, marketers and people trying to sell things and say, oh, we can tell you how it's important. It's because it defines your worth. And the way that it defines your worth is uh, that it needs to be a certain size and shape uh, and uh, what we call attractive. And some, something in us responds to that and says, well, I had this feeling the body was important. They say that that's why. That must be why. I guess I'll listen to what they have to say. Um, and to offer another option and say, yes, the body is important. You were right. It's just not because of the reasons these people are, you know, selling you. 
um, it's because our body is entwined with, you know, who we are um, and everything that we do. And like you said, it's, it's with us for the whole ride. Yeah. And I, I do think that that's why this is a spiritual issue because, you know, at the heart of anything we do to change our bodies is a desire to feel okay and to be loved and to feel seen, to be visible, to be included. Those are spiritual questions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not fitness questions. They're not even like health questions. Right. Because sometimes even the way that we engage with our wellness comes from that same thing. Because we've been told that like, if our bodies are sick, we're a drain on the world. Right. And it, especially if it has to do with anything related to body size, then it's fully our responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, which is very confusing and very dangerous because it, it just contributes to this sense of like, Oh, well. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, totally. Um, So at the core of Eat to Love is the idea of meditation. You're obviously a huge meditation fan, which is maybe a weird way to say that, but I think it's true. Um, So why why do you think meditation is so important? What does it bring to the process? What has it brought to you? Yeah, I think... I had a lot of misconceptions about meditation before I sat down and actually started doing it. Mm-hmm. It is as amazing as I thought it was, but for none of the reasons that I thought. <laughs> um, I think in terms of just the practical aspect of reconnecting with the body and its intuition and its ability to perceive is that meditation puts our mind and our body in the same place at the same time right? Our bodies are always in the present moment, but our minds are usually like back there or over there. You know, like this is, I love looking at, at this dissonance when I'm on like the subway or something, because there are all the bodies, but the minds are either at point A or point B or someplace right. else altogether or doing mm-hmm. rush. So, you know, meditation synchronizes those two. And that's a really important first step. And then it has an effect on the brain that slows things down and starts to let us see ourselves, starts to let us become familiar with like how our minds work. It starts to let us notice the like elevator music playing all the time in the background. Yeah. Daphne talks about the the ticker tape. Yeah. Yeah. And the effect that that has on our physical bodies Mm -hmm. and our thoughts and our words and our actions. It affects everything. Yeah. I think from what, well, first of all, the first thing I wanted to say is that you describe meditation in the book in a way that I think is really helpful. People should read the book and then they will get it. But one thing I was struck by is that it it was just a lot simpler than I sort of worry that meditating is going to be. I don't have to do it in a perfect way. I don't have to memorize long, complicated chants or anything. Um, The way that you describe it in the book is very simple really accessible. And also, um, you say that we don't have to do it for hours a day all the time (laughs) to have an effect, which is a huge relief. Yeah. I mean, my, my teacher always says, you know, we don't meditate to become good at meditating. We meditate in order to become good at being ourselves, to be good at life, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, 
I think of meditation in this way as helping us remember how to feel. Yeah. And how important that is in just being a human, mm-hmm. relating to our own bodies. And then I think as important relating to others. Yeah. It's so easy to um, sort of skate through existing as a person um, on this upper level where you're just sort of like doing the things and I'm doing the things and I'm getting the stuff done and I'm, you know, checking the boxes and I'm keeping afloat um, and never checking in with how do I feel about this? How do the people around me feel about what's happening? Am I hungry? Uh, Like, is my elbow cold? Like, um, you know, it's so easy just never to ask those questions. And I think um, from reading about you know, how you talk about using meditation in Eat to Love, that part of what meditation is about is just taking that time to sort of like check in on, like you said, those feelings, um, which is so easy just not never to address them otherwise. It's easy until you notice that. <laughs> right. To take an inventory of what that's cost you. Totally. You know, and I, I think of intuitive eating as really encouraging us to ask questions that many of us have never asked. Like, what do I like? What gives pleasure? What feels good? What do I care about? Like, how do I want to spend my limited resources of time and money and energy? And I think that meditation gives us a lot of the tools we need in order to take what is essentially a very counterculture approach because we're still surrounded by this cuckoo-ness. You know? True. And so, and, and like you said, this is the long path. So we need something that's going to allow us to be doing something different than most of the other people out there. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not for long. Hopefully this will continue to spread and like people will understand like it's not so dangerous. But um, we really do need that support. Yeah. We have a lot of cultural forces telling us that anything having to do with pleasure in our bodies uh, is distasteful. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of religions have told us that. Uh, a lot of what we learn in school tells us that. And one of the things that I thought uh, was so interesting about the ideas in your book was that um, it uh, it holds up in contrast the Buddhist idea of people being basically good versus this idea that I grew up with in, um, you know, a, a culture steeped in Christianity, which was that we're all born sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the if you start with one of those ideas versus the other, you just have a totally different way of looking at yourself and the people around you. Um, mm-hmm. And asking myself, like, what if what if we were all just, like, basically good? What if, you know... We just got rid of the idea that we all had something already to make up for. And instead we woke up in the morning and we're just like, you know, like basically good. Then what would we do? What would, what would stem from that? I'm an improviser. So I always say like, if that's true, what else is true? Yeah. Um, and like, oh, if we're basically good, then maybe things that I like are also good and it's okay to do them. Uh, you talk in the book about pursuing sources of pleasure that are related to food, but also that are not related to food. Like, what do you like to touch? What feels good? Um, you know, what do you actually like to listen to? 
Um, what do you, um, you know, like to wear on your feet? Do you want to wear socks or shoes or go barefoot? Um, Mm -hmm. and the idea of like, um, searching through those sort of non-food physical pleasures, uh, was really interesting to me. Yeah. Well, we have these senses that allow us to experience pleasure. And so coming from the standpoint of basic goodness, one would assume that sensing our environment and interacting with it is also basically good. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I talk about the idea that if we are all basically good, then our bodies are all basically good. And I, I ask the same kind of questions that you do. Like, what if we came to our bodies from the standpoint of all parts of me are basically good rather than like, Oh, if only I could like get rid of my body hair below my (laughs) level, you know, or if only I could not have dimples in my butt and my body would be good, you know, like trying to get rid of what we consider bad. Mm -hmm. What do we actually consider like, the goodness aspect. I was just speaking with somebody else about that perspective of, of seeing our bodies as these like adaptation machines that are always trying to protect us. Yeah. They're always compensating, accommodating, adapting, adjusting in order to protect us. How often do we take that perspective and not think about like, the very few things relatively that are not working for us yeah, because of the way we think about them, not because they're actually in you know, reality not working for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, the framework of the book is based around um, these uh, six, right? It's six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of them that I thought was uh, really interesting was um, about patience mm-hmm. uh, because I, um, once you've, uh, once a person has come to the realization that they are um, going to work towards, um, you know, a more intuitive way of dealing with uh, food and exercise and life in general, um, one of the hardest things I think is dealing with the fact that undoing all of those things that we've learned and learned so hard takes time. You know, um, both Daphne and I have had experiences where, um, you know, we we'll be feeling really cocky about like how much we've grown <laughs> and you know, how, how great we're doing. And then all of a sudden we'll be like blindsided mm-hmm. by, uh, this, um, you know, uh, fear or diet culture idea that we didn't realize we still had. And it's so frustrating because like, you know, once you decide you want to, uh, move in this direction, like you want to be done, you want to have like, washed your hands of that part of your life. And in the section on patience, you talk about um, both the fact that it's a journey and that it probably doesn't ever end. And you also talk about embracing mishaps, which mm-hmm. I thought was so interesting. Yeah, I, right. Because how often do people who start on their intuitive eating path encounter obstacles and think, oh, it's not working for me? Right. But if we saw the obstacles as the teachers, and there's this concept that like when we're ready, you know, that the, that thing that we need to learn arises, um, then it's a very different story. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I always say to people, often at, at the beginning of, of working together, people are like, I just don't want to think about food anymore. And I'm like, I understand that because it feels so distressing to you. But everyone has to think about food. Right. There's no going cold turkey off of food. Yeah, there's not. And, and also, when you change the way you think about it, you will not want to not think about it. Mm. You'll be able to relate to it differently, though. It won't be as distressing. Mm-hmm. It can become part of the way you love yourself. You care for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not something that you fix and forget about. It's right. something you have to continue to engage with in an ongoing way. And so the idea of working with the mishaps or the obstacles is recognizing that at different times in our lives, things are going to arise. Maybe it's when we're emotionally or physically stressed and our resilience and flexibility goes down. And then these seemingly ancient things kind of creep back in. But, you know, progress is not linear. And the fact that we experience difficulty is the first noble truth, right? That's the first, like, basic truth of life. It's not evidence of you're doing something wrong. It's evidence that something needs attention. Mm -hmm. And that rather than engaging with it with self-aggression, as we have historically with the diet culture, we need to engage with it with gentleness and compassion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the ideas that you talk about with um, meditation, I think, are such a good... um, uh, not exactly metaphor, but they work within meditation and they also just work like in a larger umbrella in life. Mm-hmm. Um, because once you have this practice of meditating and when a thought comes up, uh, instead of being like, bad thought, go away, just saying, oh, okay, I have a thought, I'm going to let it go. Um, if you then can do that with thoughts that come up in your life, when you have these mishaps, when something, uh, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself uh, having the kind of like, uh, self-aggressive thoughts that you, uh, thought you were done with or, um, you know, fear or doubt about your body that you had wished was over. If instead of greeting those with panic, like, oh no, I thought I was better and I'm not better. Or, uh, running towards those things. Like I always knew you were true. Um, Mm -hmm. to have that practice of meditation and that practice of noticing that the thought has come, saying, hmm, that's an interesting thought. I wonder where it came from. Like, now I'm going to let it move on. Um, is such a good tool, whether you're meditating or not. And it's, I think it's a great point because meditation then serves as the analogy for how we like relate to life. Mm-hmm. And also recognizing that when we do notice that we're having a thought, regardless of the content, regardless of its tone or, or, or you know, feeling aspect, we sort of deal with them all the same way. We maybe touch it lightly with our minds to get a sense of its texture, like in, a, in even like how does it feel in my body? And then we come back. And that is important when it comes to these, these thoughts about food and body and weight and stuff because it's, there is no inherent goodness and badness. Mm-hmm. It was a Shakespeare quote, I think. Nothing is inherently good or bad. It's his thinking that makes it so or something. Mm. But it's like just recognizing that, like, even if we have body, you know, shaming thoughts, they're not inherently bad. They might just be something that needs attention. Mm -hmm. 
You know, they're not, they're not inherently, they're certainly not indicative of regression. They're inherent of our needing to work with something in an ongoing way. Yeah, it's interesting. So I work with a lot of young kids uh, in my other life. I am a substitute teacher, mostly in preschool. And it reminds me in some ways of the ways that I think about those kids who are like four or five. Um, They may do something really adorable. They may do something super annoying. Um, But whatever it is, because they're so young, I understand as an adult, they're just doing what they're doing. They're not good or bad. They're just four. And whatever is happening is happening in the moment. And whether I personally like it or not, it's a sign that that they need attention. And so I'm going to figure out under whatever the actual behavior is, what is, what needs attention and how can I provide that so that we can then move on. Um, and, uh, in some ways I feel like I need to teach my, uh, inner voices like, or treat my inner voices like I treat the four-year-olds in my life and understand like, you're not good or bad. You're just there. And if you appear, you need attention and we'll figure it out. And it's also okay if those four-year-olds slash those thoughts press your buttons. (laughs) Yeah. Four-year-olds are really good at pressing your buttons. Mm -hmm. It's okay to not feel like even keeled about the whole thing. Right. It's okay to be like ruffled. Mm -hmm. You know, like we don't have to not have feelings about this. That's the whole point. We are welcome to have all of the feelings and to notice like what that means about our experience, you know? Um, But again, that's, you know, part of how meditation reminds us how to feel and also gives us the capacity to feel everything within the spectrum and not just to have this kind of preference for like the upper part of our experience. Right. Which actually takes the life out of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the kinds of feelings that you talk about is um, nostalgia, specifically nostalgia when you give up dieting. Yeah. And it's, it sounds funny, but I totally identified with it because uh, when you give up on the idea of diets, you're, you are letting go of what for many people is a source of hope and aspiration. Um, and if you are saying to yourself, like, I'm going to let go of the, of the magic that I hoped I was going to find in those things. Yeah. Um, how do you uh, handle that loss? You know, you how, feel it. Yeah. You feel it. You feel the sadness. You, you mourn the, the idea of this, like, fabulous life you were going to have. You maybe get angry. You probably have a lot of feelings about it, but I think it's important to feel them. Mm-hmm. Then the, the other thing that's funny about that is that when you kind of give up on that idea of happiness being over there, you're like, everyday life starts to be magical. Mm. Like, you know, having like the perfect cup of coffee this wasn't the perfect espresso, but you know, <laughs> having a moment with a stranger on the street, um, having like the perfect bite of carrot cake or feeling exhilarated on a walk, you know, as the winter is turning into spring, that's the real magic that you actually open yourself up to when you give up on 
the fake magic, the false idols of over there, later, someday, I will live my life when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it's almost time for us to go. So I wanted to tell everybody, the book is called Eat to Love. And I, if any of the ideas that we've talked about in the interview are interesting to you, I definitely recommend reading it. It's super accessible, even if you have no background in Buddhism, like I didn't. Um, and uh, But I think it's a really great way of sort of laying out what the journey looks like. If you're looking at giving up dieting uh, and diet culture and magical eating, and you're looking for like, what might the path look like? I think um, that your book does a great job of sort of illuminating what that path might be in a way that makes it feel possible and uh, also delightful. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, If people want to find the book, uh, where should they look for it? On it's, Amazon and all the things? Yeah. Um, it's a, a paperback, a Kindle, and the audio um, is actually available now. I, I recorded it myself. So Ooh, if, cool. If you want to hear this voice <laughs> um, for eight hours, <laughs> please go ahead. I will never listen to it. Um, and then my website is really like the home base for everything. It's eattolove.com, and the two is the number two. Great. I'll link to all of this in the show notes and I'll also link to all of your social media, social mediums so that uh, Lisa's artwork will get seen. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed reading your book. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Just One More with Joanna and Daphne. Our show is hosted by Daphne Yang and me, Joanna Shawflam. We're produced and edited by me. Our theme music is by Hannah vs. The Many, who you can hear at hannahvsthemany.com. We'll be back next week. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to Just One More on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For show notes, help subscribing, and to join us on Patreon, you can go to our website, justonemorepodcast.com. Let us know what you think. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Just One More Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash justonemorepodcast, or you can email us at info at justonemorepodcast.com. Thanks again, and thanks to Jenna Hollenstein, and we'll see you next week.